contrast, Jeff Clark has invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and refused to testify. Representative Scott Perry, who is also involved in trying to get Clark appointed as Attorney General, has refused to testify here. As you will see, Representative Perry contacted the White House in the weeks after January 6th to seek a presidential pardon. Multiple other Republican congressmen also sought presidential pardons for their roles in attempting to overturn the 2020 election. Season 2, Episode 15. So rare is a day in June. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6th, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro to this episode was provided by uh, Vice Chairman of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming. Noting in one of the, I think, the, the biggest revelations we got from the first hearing on Thursday, uh, June 9th, that several members of Congress, including um, Scott Perry by name, had asked for pardons from President Trump regarding their activities related to the attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election. According to reporting from CNN, uh, Scott Perry, in addition to Scott Perry, Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, and Paul Gosar are included in the set of members of the Sedition Caucus who asked President Trump, then President Trump, for pardons for January 6th related activities. So that was one of the, you know, I think, biggest revelations to come out of the first hearing. I'll talk a little bit more later on about the first hearing as we move into the second hearing. Hopefully I can get this out in time uh, just before the second hearing. Probably not an opportune time to, to put this out. Nonetheless, I didn't have a lot of time over the weekend, so please forgive me. Now, th- this episode is going to be relatively quick, hopefully, uh, less scripted than usual. Uh, it's peculiar. The January 6th committee hearings are going to be much more scripted than is the norm for congressional hearings, if the first hearing is any indication. But nonetheless, they're going to be coming as fast and furious. So I'm not going to be reading any court filings or engaging in any kind of real open source research for this episode. No real defendant profile, I'll mention one briefly. Um, but rather, I will confine myself to the agenda established by the first public hearing last Thursday uh, and a quick comment on the Proud Boys hearing in front of Judge Timothy Kelly on the same day. Nonetheless, there are certain conventions that I'd like to observe. And so, as always, here are the numbers. Source is always from the excellent people at Sedition Track. I don't expect much change in the numbers. Uh, there's not really because the last episode was just on June 8th. But there's always the, uh, you know, the great tradition of arrests on Thursdays and Fridays. It didn't really materialize last week. Um, but let's include them anyway. There have been a total of 825 individuals charged, an increase of four since the last episode, and a total of 381 indictments, no change, four deceased, no change, one dismissal, same, one acquittal, same, 314 convictions, an increase of one since the last episode, and 142 sentencings, an increase of two since our last episode. I'm not going to do the, the time to do a complete 
don't really take the time, not going to take the time rather, to do a complete profile of this episode. Uh, but I did want to mention one very notable arrest. David Walls Kaufman of Washington, D.C. Walls Kaufman is a chiropractor who back in the 1990s, I believe 1996 if I'm not mistaken, faced a civil lawsuit for allegedly having taken advantage of the chiropractor-patient relationship to repeatedly sodomize one of his female patients. He works at the Capitol Hill Chiropractic Center, which is just a short walk from the U.S. Capitol. He was allegedly inside the Capitol on January 6th, allegedly, but there's rather good video of it, and he was charged with the same four misdemeanor charges as most of the parading defendants, but with a twist this time. Wallace Kaufman is on video wrestling with uh, Metropolitan Police Officer Jeffrey Smith for his baton. Smith suffered a brain injury on January 6th, and his subsequent death by suicide has been ruled a service-related death, given the strong empirical relationship between brain injury and suicide. Walls Kaufman was identified last August by volunteer open source, source intelligence sleuths, and given his involvement with Officer Smith, his arrest was eagerly anticipated. Although, as always, there are questions about why it took so long. This is an officer, you know, uh, who he... He's not been charged with AFO, right? Walls Kaufman hasn't, but, you know, he put his hands uh, on the officer's baton and was wrestling with him, and this same officer uh, apparently suffered a brain injury, at least according to the folks at the Metropolitan Police, uh, which, again, may have caused his suicide. They ruled his death a service-related injury so that his widow could receive benefits. And, of course, there is a civil suit ongoing. So it's a case to look out for. Now, before I turn uh, in full to the hearings, I'd like to mention that there was a hearing before Judge Timothy Kelly in the Proud Boys' seditious conspiracy case. Uh, as I mentioned last time, the superseding indictment from the, the last case, the one that uh, included Terrio into the uh, conspiracy case, the previously existing conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding case, um, that you know has come out and they've added the charge of seditious, seditious conspiracy for uh, Terrio and the other Proud Boys leaders. Now, in preparation for this, I actually did something I don't usually do, and I listened to an old episode of my own podcast, uh, Season 1, Episode 3, Monkey See, Monkey Do. And um, I, I basically want to see how well that, that one actually stood up. Now, this case, of course, this Proud Boys uh, case is on this third superseding indictment. It began as the, the conspiracy to obstruct an official conspiracy, and it evolved into a case that includes... Uh, you know, seditious conspiracy. So you've got both conspiracy charges there. What's striking to me was that, despite the fact that in that episode uh, from May 27th, I was working off the first indictment before the seditious conspiracy charges and before Enrique Terrio was added as a defendant, the episode actually, I thought, still holds up rather well. The substance of the allegations contained in the, the first indictment aren't terribly different from the ones in the third indictment even though, as I mentioned before, the government's overall theory in the January 6th cases has evolved. It now includes everything from the behavior in the fall of 2020 to advance Trump's widely anticipated election loss, right? Uh, you know, to put forward these cuckoo theories of Dominion voting machines, etc. and so forth. 
Um, to, you know, subsequent behavior following at January 6th itself, and of course the behavior on the, the date of January 6th itself. Now, one de detail that surfaced in the public hearing last Thursday was that the fact that the Proud Boys didn't hear a single word of Trump's speech, having already left to attack the Capitol before Trump actually began to speak. Now, so many people commented on this, um... They treat this as new information, but of course, if you are a regular listener to the show, you will know that this is not new information to you, right? Nor is it new information to the many sedition hunters who realize that almost immediately. Um, they're on that timeline immediately. So, if you have questions about Proud Boys and haven't listened, uh, that you know that episode includes not a comprehensive timeline, but a full timeline, including that detail that apparently many people. Uh, who, I don't know, probably should know better, D.C. area journalists, uh, you know, very, you know, people who you would think would be following this more closely, um, didn't, didn't know that fact. Which, you know, I think says a lot about the hearings. I was expecting new bombshell material, but apparently uh, there have been, you know, there's enough old stuff that people don't know that uh, they're going to treat it like a bombshell, even if it's something that we do in, February or January of 2021. So some of you may have heard that detail here first last May. Now, there are a couple of other parts of that particular episode, the Monkey See, Monkey Do episode, that I would like to direct your attention to, one of which is a clip from Donald Trump, who said that the mob should be more like a boxer. Uh, again, this is a call to violence. There's been a lot made of the it will be wild and you've got to fight like hell or you're not going to get your country back. But I also think that this one's important, right? Because what do boxers do? They punch people, right? And what behavior did we observe uh, at the Capitol from, you know, paramilitary gang members, uh, radicalized normies and violent men? They, they punch the officers, right? So, you know, again, just another invocation of violence um, that, you know, Trump was basically verbally calling for these defendants to do. And also, again, you know, behavior that was modeled by the Proud Boys. Uh, that was the overarching theme of the episode, right? What I call the monkey see, monkey do theory. The Proud had violent paramilitary gangs in it, as well as other violent men who I believe were salted into the crowd to lead the attack. But much of the behavior that these men engaged in was aimed at modeling violent behavior to incite violence against the police by the mob. I think this part of the story hasn't garnered as much attention as perhaps it needs or deserves. The Proud Boys were very important as pathfinders, as wayfinders, and as a vanguard, but also because they modeled the violent behavior that they wished to incite in the mob itself. Now, of course, there's another bit in the episode where... Uh, yeah, seems prophetic now, right? You know, I made the claim then that Terrio might be charged. I didn't anticipate seditious conspiracy charges, but nonetheless, you know, that he might be added to that. That wasn't, you know, you'll have to be Nostradamus to come up with that. Why did it take so long? Again, they had problems uh, unlocking his phone. And also there was that matter of the convenient arrest for the destruction of the Black Lives Matter uh, flag, sorry and um, the extra-large capacity magazines, which, you know, I think the government felt they may have had a, a higher bar in his case because he wasn't physically present, right? Uh, he had been apprehended 
And so um, I think that they needed to make sure that they had other evidence showing how deeply involved he was in the planning and the organization prior to his arrest to include him in this January 6th seditious conspiracy case. So, you know, in hindsight, I mean, really, really still does look like Terrio kind of got arrested on purpose. Uh, and it did, I think, it, you know, that's one of the main reasons why it took so long to charge him. So anyway, you know, I don't, uh, I, it, was, it was actually a rather surprise to me, given all the developments that we've had, that the episode stood up as well as it did. And so if you want to refresh your memory, uh, go back and listen to that one. Um, all right. Now, back to the subject of the hearing before Judge Kelly last Thursday, which lasted for two hours and 15 minutes, and which I listened to on the call-in line and live-tweeted. So if you follow me on Twitter, you can go back and look at that from Thursday, June 9th. Now, the ostensible purpose of the hearing was for the court to hear testimony on a motion from Joe Biggs' attorney, John Hull. Hull's motion involved giving the defendants access to the same facial recognition information on the video evidence that the prosecutors have. So this is something called Brady, right? This is Brady rule. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so what he was asking the AUSAs to do was to review all the video evidence uh, using facial recognition hits to, and then flagging the things that they found that might be potentially exculpatory for this set of defendants. So they call this like Brady material. Basically, to comply with the Brady rule, that requires that the government hand over exculpatory and, quote, materially relevant uh, material, right? So Paul seems to want to go a little bit further. And he, what he's really asking for is anything that might be potentially exculpatory. I don't know what on what basis he has this idea that there's, you know, whole bunch of potentially exculpatory material contained in the video evidence on evidence.com because the more of this video you look at uh, the more you find the same people who are doing bad things that we know about doing more bad things that's that's generally what you're going to find there's not a, a heck of a lot of things that are exculpatory um but not, nonetheless i mean holes actually he seemed reasonable he seemed to know that what he was asking for was a bit of an ask. And it also seemed like it was, you know, there was a little bit of a, a kind of a, I don't know what to say, cross-talk about this, you know. Um, McCulloch, the AUSA, seemed to indicate that, well, you know, um, evidence.com is great and relativity is great and you're just having problems accessing this because you haven't really learned the systems. Um, but the government did propose a remedy and they said, in fact, this was something they were going to do all along, which was they were going to review the universe of video evidence available and then get all that information, just all the hits, not, quote, potentially exculpatory information because I don't think the government thinks there is any, um, but to get that information where the, the, the video, the facial recognition hits occur. And of course, you know, if you've looked at any of the facial recognition material, you'll know that, well, facial recognition hits don't always hit on the guy or the person that you're looking for. You know, if you look for a middle-aged white guy with a beard, you're just going to wind up with a lot of middle-aged white guys with a beard who are not this necessarily the same individual. So I don't know if they're actually going to have to win it. The government's really going to winnow through all this material. Um, but 
Judge Kelly seemed satisfied with that. Uh, he's going to entertain the motion, uh, you know, and I was actually favorably impressed. Uh, you know, he is a Trump-appointed judge, and there are, have been others, such as Trevor McFadden, who I think uh, are very favorably disposed to defendants. Um, but Kelly seemed to be objective and reasonable um, and not particularly inclined to He'll entertain the notion, but he said that in 999 cases out of a thousand, what Hull wants the government to do isn't something that they could reasonably expect them to do. And part of this is there's the expectation that, you know, this is going to apply in other cases as well, right? So it's not just the Proud Boys. In fact, it would be uh, all subsequent cases, you know, if there's video evidence, um, again, not just in January 6th cases, but on the DCD, right? So Judge Kelly rules that in this case, you know, he's basically set up a precedent for further defendants who are going to come uh, before him. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, trial judges have to take into account. So ultimately, uh, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to request this material. On the other hand, you know, I think what Hull has asked is a little bit too far. And I, I think that uh, the judge is going to find the government's proposed remedy of simply handing over all facial recognition matches uh, to be acceptable. But, you know, I could be wrong. Um, yeah, I should mention that all three defendants in the court, uh, just as a side matter, they had, I don't think this is this the plan, but uh, while Judge Kelly had them there, um, you know, he had them all for pleas. Three of the four, sorry, three out of five were there physically present. Two of them uh, couldn't be, I don't recall which ones, uh, but those three who were present entered not guilty pleas. I expect that the remaining two defendants will also enter not guilty pleas as well. So in the final bit of business um, from the Proud Boys hearing, uh, one of the defense attorneys, Carmen Hernandez, Zach Real of Philadelphia's attorney, uh, asked that basically asserted very confidently that the government is speaking to the Department of Justice. And she said that she knows this based on the fact that when she has had other misdemeanor defendants, not, not these defendants, obviously these are felony defendants, but other defendants, misdemeanor defendants, plead in January 6 cases, all, almost right away she hears from the committee saying, would your client like to talk to the committee? So that's interesting. And she seemed very confident in this assertion. And she seemed very confident that this implied that the government and the DOJ is working together to some extent, right? She didn't seem to... She, her tone, I mean, it was animated. Um, she didn't, you know, really go all the way and say that, you know, this is, this is improper or anything of the sort. Uh, but nonetheless... She seemed rather upset about this, um, especially, again, because, you know, that evening they were going to have, the, they did have, the very first January 6th committee hearing and public hearing, and that committee hearing involved a lot of material that was relevant to the problems. So a number of them did get upset about that point. Uh, and uh, one of them, actually, uh, the attorney... Uh, Mr. Smith, I believe, I forget whose attorney he is, said that this was mixing politics improperly uh, with the administration of justice. Now, of course, 
The problem is, right, if you commit a political crime, politics and justice are inevitably going to be mixed up in the prosecution of that. So, you know, what are you going to do? I think the answer is don't commit a, a political crime. Um, they would probably have a better argument with just the idea that this material would, would be prejudicial and uh, make jury selection more difficult. But they didn't actually spend a lot of time on that. They just seemed very sort of vaguely upset about that. And the final thing, I promise you that the last one was the final thing, but this is also important. Um, Hull, John Hull, seemed to be very anxious to get his hands on the testimony transcripts from the January 6th committee. Now, some of these transcripts, of course, will be from either undiagnosed conspirators, or let's say, in, you know, he's representing Proud Boys, other Proud Boys, um, but it's, it's all, a lot of it is material from former Trump administration officials, right? Uh, so he and the other attorneys, I might add, were very upset that the committee has a thousand transcripts or something like that, some number of transcripts, and that the they you know these defendants don't have that. They think that this material should be included in the discovery. And actually, I think it was Hull who, who basically seemed to feel that the government already had this material. Um, and the, the AUSA, McCulloch said, no, we, we don't have that, but here's what we'll do. If we get it to you, uh, you know, if we get it, we'll get it to you quickly. And Judge Kelly seemed to like that idea and said, okay, well, if that, as a matter of fact, I'm going to issue a ruling right now. Um, if the government gets their hands on these transcripts, then this material should be given to the defense within 24 hours. So that is what happens now. If the DOJ gets their hands on the committee transcripts. This will go into, I believe, global discovery in all January 6th cases. Why does that matter? Well, the government is trying to build a case in, you know, the government, the committee, sorry, is trying to build a case in the court of public opinion at the moment. And uh, releasing every transcript, I think, would uh, kind of tip their hand. So I can see why the committee would not want to do that. And I know that there has been uh, a bit of a, public kerfuffle over the issue of whether or not the Department of Justice and the committee are going to cooperate and share information. I actually think in light of this, however, it makes sense that for the time being, the committee would want to keep their cards close to their chest. Uh, they would not want to reveal their hand and give this information to the defense attorneys because, again, there have been issues with discovery, right? Jeffrey McKellop, for example, uh, you remember him as the uh, violent, uh, allegedly CIA contractor who allegedly stabbed a uh, MPD captain in the face of a flagpole. Oh, there's scars in the video, but allegedly, right? Um, he got into trouble recently for apparently mishandling his uh, discovery material from his jail cell. So, you know, once this gets into discovery... Uh, then attorneys get it, defendants get it. And these are not people, I think, who, you know, really, you know, I would trust the attorneys more than some of these defendants um, who are there because they have uh, an extremist political agenda. And so, you know, I, I don't think that they, these are necessarily people who would be trusted with this highly sen sensitive information at this point in time. They can sit and watch the, the committee hearings with everybody else. Now, I just wanted to say a few things about the first hearing on the 9th, and then a little bit about what we can expect from the hearing today, which by the time this comes out, you will probably already listen to. 
Now, the first thing was I, my initial take was, I was a little disappointed, right? If you go down and go back to the first episode of the year, uh, you, when they first announced these hearings, you saw that one of the things that I expected them to do was to use a hook. Some kind of new bombshell information that would hook people in and get them to watch, or at least watch reruns of the, the hearings. Um, that really didn't happen. There wasn't a lot new. But what was interesting was that a lot of the things that, to you and I, are, are old news, such as the fact that the Proud Boys were attacking the Capitol while Trump was speaking, they didn't actually go and listen to that, was treated by people as if this was new news. So, I guess, yay. Uh, the organization of the, these committees shows that they put some thought into it. And um, even though I had initially thought, well, there's not a lot of new here, and I nonetheless took notes, and then wound up with 11 pages of notes, so there was a lot of material. And even if it's not new to you or I, it is going to be new to a lot of people. And, of course, that one piece of information that members of Congress, members of the Sedition Caucus, sought pardons, that is new and different. And it shows cognizance of guilt on their part. So it was clear that the goal of this first hearing was kind of to set the tone. And I personally wasn't overly enamored of the fact that you had uh, Chairman Thompson, Vice Chairman uh, Cheney, deliver this long sort of preamble. But if you look at what it was, what they did, they outlined the, the case that they're going to make. So I think there was some sense in which this was necessary. Um, perhaps not the most sort of televisually uh, appealing way to do it. I would have liked to have seen more computer graphics and, you know, really grabbing people, showing them how well organized the attack was. There was a little bit of that. I think they could have done a, a bit better of that. There was too much people reading from teleprompters, and they were doing so in a very careful way. I also do think that this also tells us something about the witnesses that we're going to be seeing. They had friendly witnesses. Um, they, you know, these were not witnesses who were going to give material that was unexpected, right? There's that old adage about attorneys not asking questions that they don't already know the answers to. That's what we're going to be seeing in these hearings. We're going to be seeing the committee members asking witnesses questions to which they already testified under oath, right? So these are people who've already given video depositions and they are now testifying in public. But their answers are going to be the same, obviously, right? Because perjury is a thing. Lying to Congress is not something, well, not something most people do. I mean, um, so, yeah. So that's what we're going to see. We're not going to see, you know, sort of hostile witnesses, right? So people who wanted to see, uh, you know, Peter Navarro being grilled by Adam Schiff. I don't think that that's... that's going to happen. That's not the kind of thing that we're going to see. We're going to see other people who have damning testimony, but who nonetheless are not, you know, really hostile witnesses uh, are going to give their testimony. And it is going to be, um, you know, I, I want to say formal and somewhat scripted, right? Because they're going to ask questions and people know what the questions are going to be and the answers are things that are already entered into evidence, so it's going to be consistent with what the committee already knows. And of course, I thought the live testimony was effective. Um, uh, Carolyn Edwards, uh, like the other four officers who had testified previously, 
was a very effective witness. She was telegenic and well-spoken. Um, and of course, you know, suffered a brain injury on January 6th in the vicious attack by Ryan Samsel, uh, which I know I've talked about here, right? There's that moment where Joe Biggs said something to Ryan Samsel, and Ryan Samsel is the very first one to charge the bike racks, the barricades, and Officer Edwards is trying to uh, hold them back and winds up taking a step back, taking a step onto the, the concrete steps, falling back, hitting her head, and losing consciousness. Um, so, you know, and Samsel, of course, in the bit they didn't show, you know, rushes over and, like, grabs her, and it's like, oh, why did you, you know, why are you resisting? It's like, she's doing her job, dude. You're the violent thug here. You know, don't, don't act like you can just pick someone off the ground and pretend you didn't just insult, assault a federal law enforcement officer. We all saw what happened. So I thought that that was effective. Um, some people, oddly, have raised questions about Nick Quested which I think is really strange. So Quest did, he did a documentary, Ray Strepo, uh, based on a year in a life, I know I talked about this, of a platoon in Afghanistan in the Valley, award-winning, won an Emmy Award. Um, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you look at this guy's resume, you know, he is, is not someone like um, Amy, what's her name? The, Enrique Terrio's so-called photographer, right? You know, who's clearly affiliated with the problems. This is someone who has a 20-plus year career as a documentarian, as a documentary filmmaker, as a serious documentary filmmaker. If he is actually a Proud Boys plan, you know, I mean, he would have had to, like, okay, well, his father owns a production company, and so, like, before the Proud Boys ever even existed, he's set himself up as, this, you know, his mind blown, right? So a lot of, some people made something of the fact that he uh, said that he was there under subpoena. Yes, well, we know that some of the witnesses did request subpoenas, and there are logical reasons why Mr. Quested might want a subpoena, right? He's a foreign national, and he also, you know, does work in the United States. Uh, I believe he's based on New York currently. And he, you know, is probably going to do documentaries in the future, and he's going to have to build a rapport with future sub subjects, some of whom, again, you know, the kind of work he do he's doing looking at things like violence, or even political violence, um, you know, he's going to want to be able to show that, okay, well, I didn't really, I, my testimony was compelled, right? Even though, again, his testimony was entirely forthright. Um, it was a bit odd, I thought, in that there, there was, they had, they had said they weren't going to use the garage meeting, but the garage meeting uh, with, you know, uh, Terrio and Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Sorrell, and Bianca Garcia from Latinos for Trump. Um, this meeting was known, and, you know, people, again, one of those things where people came out, I, I think it came out in March, um, and they were saying, well, this is new. Well, it wasn't It wasn't new. I mean, we did know about this, but, again, new to some people. Um, and there, there wasn't the bombshell new footage from him that I thought, you know, we might have seen. I think the only thing new that I saw was uh, footage from an Uber or Lyft with Terrio, where Terrio speaks of the mutual respect between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Nonetheless, I thought he was an effective witness, and I, I thought that the people who are raising uh, some kind of questions about him just because he was doing a documentary about the Proud Boys, I'm doing a doc I, I'm, I'm doing a podcast about the January 6th insurrection, right? 
doesn't mean I support the January 6th insurrection. It means I think that the January 6th insurrection was an important threat to democracy. So certainly being a Proud Boys sympathizer isn't the only reason you would want to do a documentary about the Proud Boys. It shows, in fact, that, you know, Quested was probably concerned about what that means for, uh, you know, probably the, the most important electoral democracy in the Western world, that we have these violent street gangs that are organizing these political, uh, poli you know, political attacks, this political violence uh, in trying to overturn an election. Now, again, you know, he didn't know that going into it, but, you know, seems prescient on his part. Good choice of subject, and I hope he winds up coming up with a, a good product uh, at the end of the day. And I don't think he's in any way suspicious at all. I mean, it could be Americans' latent xenophobia, right? Uh, just kind of like, well, he's a foreigner, you know, therefore, I don't know. I mean, Gavin McInnes, you know, is also a foreigner, right? So he's from Canada. Canada is, you know... Uh, affiliate, you know, the head of state, who's the head of state of Canada? It's the Queen. Oh my goodness. Boom. Mind blown. I mean, it, it is, it's absurd, right? There are many people who are in the press, uh, in the crowd, legitimate members of the press, not the fake members of the press, right? Uh, who are, you know, basically any rando with a YouTube channel, you just show up and put press on their, their hat and then you start attacking the actual press, which is the thing that actually happened. So... You know, I thought that they were both effective witnesses, uh, although what we got that was new out of them, um, I, I don't I don't think there was a lot. I think that they're going to have eyewitnesses uh, in each of these hearings, and there's going to be varying degrees what they uh, of effectiveness. What they did do was they set up the overall or overarching scheme, and they are they are going in some sense chronologically. And the problem was they were the first instigators. They were the first people to use. Uh, violence against the police. So it makes sense that if you're going to start January 6th, you would start with the Proud Boys. You would identify, uh, basically, you know, the enemies of democracy, give them a name, put them out there. And the Proud Boys are connected to all kinds of people who are higher up in the food chain. Uh, so it makes sense that they would be starting out with the Proud Boys because that is one of the potential links between the attacking mob and the organizers, uh, perhaps within Congress or within the Trump administration or the Trump campaign. So not a lot, a lot of bombshells from these witnesses, but I thought that they were both very effective. And, you know, my sort of complete attitude, you can't do a complete description of the January 6th attack and the preamble to the January 6th attack in two hours. So, you know, it may be that a long explanation of every detail isn't the best way to go. I mean, the richer in detail it is, the harder it is to follow. You know, perhaps a podcast is a better format for this than, you know, these public hearings. Um, you know, and I think that if people are looking for an org chart, you know, like I have been for a long time, um, you know, there is no org chart, right? So the January 6th insurrection was a crowdsourced effort with different people basically volunteering, putting their hands up, right, like John Eastman did, uh, to take part in it. You know, people saying, hey, I can do this for you, right? You know, Mike Flynn, Bannon, all these people who were basically in charge of different elements of the plan. Sidney Powell, the election lies, the court cases, Rudy Giuliani. 
So it's a, it's a large network, but like overall command and control is diffuse, at least in my mind. Um, and establishing, you know, the smoking gun link with the President Trump is going to be different, difficult to do. Uh, you've got all these different people who have different kinds of hammers looking for uh, the right kind of nail to hit, right? Um, you know, so you've got paramilitary gangs. Well, let's launch a paramilitary-style attack. You know, I mean, it could be that some of the reason why we have political violence on January 6th is because we've built up, we've, excuse me, we've permitted the far right to build up this infrastructure of political violence and they're looking continually for opportunities to deploy political violence. And this gave them, you know, sort of a perfect cover and also a potential pretext for Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act uh, or something of that nature to get the military involved and to end electoral democracy in America. Uh, I was also happy to see, I mean, like, they, they hit all the major figures, right? So there's, you know, they mentioned Bannon briefly. Uh, they show his uh, moment from the podcast. Uh, in which, you know, he says, you know, it's going gonna to be crazy tomorrow in D.C. Uh, on January uh, 5th. And, of course, his upcoming contempt case. So that's that's the thing that's happening soon. So, you know, Bannon is very much in mind. I look forward to hearing more about him in these hearings. Um, there is some interesting testimony with regard to Mike Pence. And Liz Cheney made uh, the observation, of course, that... Donald Trump didn't call the Pentagon. He didn't call the National Guard. He didn't speak to people at DHS. But Mike Pence did all those things. And so there's been some confusion uh, with regard to what that means. Some people saying that Mike Pence ordered out the National Guard. That's not true. That's simply not true, and that is not what happened. Mike Pence did talk to people. Uh, I believe he called General Milley, among others. But he doesn't, he's not in the chain of command. He didn't have the authority to call out the National Guard, and he didn't ultimately call out the National Guard, right? We've been through this in the Matthews Memo episode. Basically what happened was that Ryan McCarthy was going all around town telling everybody that deployment had been authorized. It was just a matter of working out the kinks, right? But he had already told McConville that deployment is authorized and help is on the way. And General McConville relayed that message to Walker, and at 508... Walker says, this, this second-hand authorization is good enough for me. We're getting our guys over to the Capitol. That's basically what happened, right? Stonewalled by Flynn and Piat, um, you know, waiting on this pointless video conference while Chris Miller holds himself in, you know, totally incommunicado, and uh, Brian McCarthy just kind of goes all over the place, visits Mayor Bowser to try to persuade her to not possibly, you know, not make a, a big stink about uh, the fact that the D.C. National Guard wasn't there. So, you know, the fact that Pence was calling for the National Guard to be deployed is not the same as him ordering the National Guard to be deployed. Uh, there was a comment that, you know, we need to control this narrative that Mike Pence is in charge and doing these things. Um, there's a latent tension in any system. We have a president and a vice president that, you know, Basically, the, the vice president it can be a rival claimant. Um, we saw this, you know, uh, with Thomas Jefferson, right? So, you know, our original system of, of having elections, you know, the presidency and vice presidency went to the top two vote getters. 
who, of course, in a partisan system are always going to be of opposite parties. So, you know, that is, is not a great idea. Um, but formally, the vice president presides over the Senate, visits foreign dignitaries, um, and, and does little else in our system. Certainly doesn't deploy the National Guard. So there's some confusion about that. Like, you know, is it constitutional that Mike Pence was deploying the National Guard? No, but Mike Pence wasn't deploying the National Guard anyway. If he had been, they would have been there sooner. And so the overarching theme, I mean, the, the plan of attack, it seems now, is that they're going to go uh, largely chronologically, right? So, you know, they laid out the case, but they did it in a kind of a scattershot way um, because it's such a big story. Right? There's so many different elements. But nonetheless, I believe that they're mainly going to proceed chronologically with the hearings, which is why today's hearing is so important, because it is the hearing that is going to be based on the spreading of the election lies about Dominion voting systems, about you know the allegations of mass in-person electoral fraud, um, and you know showing how how that happened uh, in the run-up to January sixth. So you know, and the, again with the attack, they focus on the very first element of the attack, uh, the Proud Boys. So you know, again they lead out the case in full. Um, Chairman Thompson said, quote, Donald Trump was at the center of this conspiracy. And one thing that I was keen to see was that amongst the charges, uh, Thompson mentioned conspiracy to defraud the United States. No one has been charged with this yet, okay? But I believe that if you look at the fake electors, uh, that is, you know, the presidency of the United States is a thing of value, right? And so if you appoint fake electors to try to take control of the presidency of the United States, you're defrauding the United States government, taking a thing of value. And if you're conspiring to do that, that's a conspiracy. So that is something to watch for with regard to the criminal liability of these fake slates of electors. So they have every incentive to uh, cooperate with the government against people like the person who allegedly organized the conspiracy to defraud the United States, John Eastman. Uh, Thompson also did, I, I think, a... a little bit of a service in reminding us that the, you know, Republicans complain about the, the committee, but in fact the alternative was a commission. And if you go back and listen to episode one, I didn't want a commission. A commission would have been bad. Commissions are generally toothless. This committee has more power. Commissions don't, you know, they can't make criminal referrals. People, for all the complaining about the lack of criminal referrals um, from this committee, the committee has way more power to do that than, you know, and even the possibility of inherent contempt, which it so far not exercised. Uh, way more power to do that than uh, some toothless commission, right? And so Thompson was right to point out that this is not a, you know, this is not a commission precisely because Republicans in Congress blocked the formation of a commission. They could have had a commission. It would have been much more fully bipartisan. And yet they didn't want that they didn't want, you know, why? Well, I mean, gee, do you want to put criminals, you know, you don't have criminals investigate their own acts, right? Criminals are going to say, no, we don't want uh, a commission to investigate us every single time. So we were, we were left with the select committee format after months of trying to negotiate this out, which is why, again, you know, you only have it formed in the summer of 2021. So, you know, 
I thought that was effective. That was a good thing to remind people of. Uh, and Thompson was very clear that Donald Trump is at the center of the conspiracy and uh, the, you know, defending the Constitution, he, he, meaning Thompson, took an oath to defend the Constitution and that defense begins here and it begins now. A little bit of news uh, got broke, broken, I guess, by Liz Cheney uh, who said that there are going to be six former White House staff who are going to testify. So that's significant, right? So people like, for example, I guess, Cassidy Hutchins, for example, are going to wind up testifying. And she also pointed out, of course, the language that Trump apparently used in response to calls to hang Mike Pence, which was to say, uh, maybe Pence deserves it. Maybe my supporters are right. Maybe Pence deserves it. So they're going to be, specifically, you know, Liz Cheney says they are going to be looking at what Trump was doing when he was watching television in the dining room next to the Oval Office. And there's going to be testimony from people who had access to him at that point, including, of course, Ivanka Trump, who tried to talk him into calling it off. Um, I thought Ivanka's testimony, you know, it was like just one brief snippet saying, I respect Bill Barr, and, you know, I trust his judgment, and that that was something that, you know, impressed upon me that he stood up by apologist delusion. She didn't say that. Uh, but again, Ivanka's really, if you're expecting her to strongly denounce Donald Trump, you know, there is a will, right? Um, she, she's not going to do that. Uh, that may be the best snippet they have from however many hours of testimony they had from Ivanka Trump. Cheney also pointed out that they're going to have testimony from the attackers themselves and social media posts from them. Um, and she made the point in one of the more memorable lines that, quote, Donald Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. And I think we're going to see that, right? I mean, you know, his invocations of violence, both from the Will Be Wild tweet uh, and, of course, his speech at the Ellipse. But again, yet his concerted network of people uh, all on the Internet, you know, trying to encourage people to come to the Capitol and to uh, enact this program of political violence. And so they are going to outline what they call a sophisticated seven-part plan. And that, you know, Donald Trump knew that he lost, the people around him knew that he lost, um, but there was a massive effort to spread false information. And that is what we're going to get at at the second hearing today at 10 o'clock. Actually, 10.30. Uh, I should mention that former Trump campaign official Stepien, William Stepien, uh, apparently has a family emergency, right? So I think what they're going to do is they're going to take a little bit of time to go back and get his video testimony, and his attorney is going to be there, but Stepien himself is not. So delayed by half an hour, which is fine. Gives me more time to get this uh, quick reaction podcast out there. There's also surprisingly good testimony on video from Jason Miller. And again, I think sometimes, you know, uh, these... Some people are going to wind up being unexpected protagonists. Who's going to be the John Dean? Well, not Jason Miller, but maybe. Uh, Miller said, quote, I was in the Oval Office uh, when Matt, somebody I didn't catch the last name, I could look it up, I'm not going to, uh, basically one of Trump's campaign pollsters, delivered to the president pretty blunt terms that he was going to lose, right? So Trump knew ahead of time. You know, this is not rocket science. It's political science. Um... You know, but polling showed that he was going to lose, and the polling was accurate. But Trump, you know, wanted, you know, 
again, to undermine what his own internal numbers had already been showing him. There's also a quote from Alex Cannon that, quote, we weren't finding anything that would be sufficient to change the results in any of the key states. And so uh, this is from a conversation with Mark Meadows uh, and in mid-November, and Meadows' response to this quote, so there's no there there, right? So Donald Trump knows that they lost. And Mark Meadows knew that they probably knew on election night, but even after... Uh, a lot of time spent working on the issue, you know, Cannon and others who were looking still couldn't find anything because guess what? It didn't happen. Our elections are actually pretty secure in this country. Another thing that I thought was effective, of course, was Bill Barr's testimony uh, when he said, quote, I did not see evidence of fraud. A year and a half later, I still haven't seen anything that would change my mind on that. Um, and he called the Dominion voting claims Complete nonsense, crazy stuff, a great, great disservice to our country. So, you know, Bill Barr, of course, is on a, a bit of a redemption tour. I don't think he's redeemable, but nonetheless, uh, you know, when he saw what was happening, he, he did resign. He didn't warn us about it, but he did at least resign. Liz Cheney also mentioned the fact that the Trump administration and the Trump campaign lost 60 suits, and it's worth remembering that uh, Rudy Giuliani actually lost his bar license as a result of the nonsensical and uh, certifiably fraudulent claims that he was making in court. Attorneys aren't supposed to do that. So um, they're also going to establish in today that the fact that they used millions of dollars in campaign funds uh, for this massive misinformation campaign. So that's what we're going to hear today. Now, originally, we're going to hear uh, from two panels, one featuring William Stepien, former Trump campaign manager. He allegedly had a family emergency, wasn't going to be there. Sorry, I mentioned what's going to happen. Basically, they're going to go through his video testimony, and his attorney is going to be there, but Stepien himself isn't going to be there. And they're also going to have a Chris Starwalt, who's former Fox News political editor, who got in trouble at Fox, I believe was either fired or was or quit, um, you know, after he decided to call, I believe it was Arizona, for uh, Joe Biden. That was apparently, you know, uh, a bridge too far. Um, so, you know, interesting question, right? We know that Hannity was all up in Mark Meadows' phone. Uh, so, you know, we can see that what kind of coordination perhaps existed between the Trump campaign and the official televised uh, propaganda organ of the Republican Party, Fox News. The second panel is going to be uh, Mr. Benjamin Ginsburg, an election attorney, B.J. Pack, a notable uh, witness, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. Uh, again, that, that's the whole Georgia case, which is ongoing, right? So, you know, Pack gets fired uh, improperly for, you know, basically doing his job and refusing illegal orders from the Trump administration. So we'll get to hear from uh, Mr. Pack. I'm sure he'll be a great witness. And finally, Al Schmidt, former city commissioner of Philadelphia. So those are going to be the witnesses today. Bill Stepien, not going to make it. Um, but, you know, hopefully there's, there's going to be, I mean, again, there's so many lies to sort through 
and it'll be interesting to see how the committee begins to make sense of sorting through the lots. So let's move ahead a little bit because one of the things they did at the hearing on the 9th was to outline the overall plan. They talked about what they're going to have at the third hearing, uh, which is going to focus on the plan to replace the acting Attorney General, Jeff Rosen, with Jeff Clark. Um, and you know, Jeff Clark had a letter to, ready to go from the Department of Justice that he was going to give to five key swing states, including Georgia. And it basically took um, Pat Cipollone and uh, a whole bunch of lawyers from the DOJ threatening to resign uh, in order to, you know, nip this in the butt, the firing of Rosen and the replacement with Jeff Clark. So I expect we will hear from uh, Donahue uh, at the Justice Department as well, uh, who in his email wrote this, quote, this would have been nothing less than the Department of Justice meddling in the outcome of the presidential election. End quote. So I expect he will be a good witness. Uh, Liz Cheney noted that Jeff Clark himself was invoking the Fifth Amendment uh, with regard to the plans to replace Rosen uh, and, you know, basically fraudulently overturn election results. And that Scott Perry, who was also involved in that, uh, refused to testify. And that is when the pardon, uh, subject of the pardon, came up. And also the, the fact that, or well, the allegation, that multiple other members of Congress uh, issued or sought pardons. Uh, There's also recorded testimony from Mike Pence, uh, who was speaking in front of the Federalist Society, who wrote, who said that, quote, there's nothing more un-American than to have one person choose the president. That's true, right? So, I mean, the Eastman scheme is just absolutely unsubstantiated in uh, American constitutional history. This is not the way we do it. Why have elections if you can have one person basically throw out election results and declare a new election, right? You remember the election of 2000 when Vice President Al Gore was on the ticket and, you know, there's a controversial Supreme Court decision. You know, if, if the Vice President had that the power that Eastman seems to feel he does, poor, you know, Gore could have uh, thrown out the results and called for a new election or called in the military or whatever other cockamamie scene. It doesn't happen because the Vice President doesn't have that. He's simply presiding. Right, and that's consistent with the way the vice president presides on a day-to-day -day basis in the Senate. Um, it doesn't even get a vote unless there's a 50-50 split. Right, vice president is a presiding officer, but he's not really in charge of anything. He's there to, to maintain order and bang his gavel, so or her gavel, excuse me. Um, we're going to see uh, all kinds of, of testimony uh, from you know uh, Mark Short. Uh, who is basically acting, I think, as Pence's surrogate. Uh, got a comment from him, quote, Pence knew his fidelity to the Constitution was his foremost oath. Um, we're also going to see, I hope, testimony from Judge Ludic, who I've mentioned before. Judge Ludic, highly respected in conservative circles, Federalist Society, of course, you know how I feel about them. Nonetheless, he acted to defend the Constitution. When Mike Pence asked, do I have this power, do I have this authority, Judge Ludic said no, and he has been public in opposition to this scheme. And so when conservatives have decided to stand up for responsibility to the Constitution, I think it's important to acknowledge that. And Judge Ludic has done that and hopefully will do that before the committee. And also mentioned the, uh, brought up the, the, the quote from Greg Jacob, who said, quote, 
Uh, thanks to your bullshit, we are under siege. This was, again, in uh, one of the messages from January 6th, right? So, you know, I think Bill Barr used the word bullshit as well, right? So there are a lot of people uh, saying that this was bullshit. And we're, I expect to see more people, you know, connected to Trumpist circles, not central planners themselves, but, you know, acknowledging that this was, in fact, bullshit. Another thing I look forward to is the fifth hearing where they will have new details. Specifically, Cheney promised new details in the fake electoral plot, the false certification. Again, I expect that that ultimately, if there are charges directed at the inner circle uh, that don't stem from the attack itself, you know, this whole element, I think, it's constitutionally dangerous, but I think less sexy, I want to say, than uh, a violent attack, but nonetheless... You know, important. I mean, there are hundreds of people probably involved in this thing. Well, they tried to keep it quiet, right? But, you know, dozens of fake electors that were appointed. And again, that's a scheme to defraud the United States government. That's a criminal conspiracy. And that may be the thing that ultimately winds up getting charged out of all this. And I also look forward to these sixth and seventh public hearings, where, which is basically Trump summons the mob. And so if we're looking for direct links between the mob of attackers and uh, Trump himself and or people in his inner circle and or members of Congress, that might be where we get it, right? So that might be where we figure out who brought, who paid for the buses, who brought in, uh, you know, these various violent men that I've identified in other episodes. You know my pet theory. So a couple of key points that uh, Cheney outlined, that the investigation is still ongoing and that the Department of Justice is working with cooperating witnesses. So, again, more evidence of a multiple-track investigation. I am impatiently waiting uh, indictments as well, but I think that perhaps some of those are going to be forthcoming. And the final bit I thought that was very effective in the uh, first hearing was testimony from uh, the defendants themselves, or actually some people who you weren't even uh, charge on January 6th. So, uh, and they basically all said in so many words, we were at the Capitol because Trump told us to come to the Capitol. They've got hundreds of people saying this, probably. So I think that that is one of the things that we can expect on the 6th and 7th hearings, right? So, you know, you, you don't necessarily need an email to be engaged in some kind of conspiracy. Uh, things can happen verbally. And, you know, Trump basically said, Go attack police. I'm going to be with you. You know, go to the Capitol. Be like a boxer and show strength because you can't take back this nation with weakness, right? And so, all in all, first hearing, thought it went well. Um, my initial take was, it, I, didn't, I didn't think it was as strong as it could be, uh, but especially I think that the, the next hearings, hopefully it won't have this large, long preamble and even if there's not a lot of new stuff, which, you know, we know, I mean, pipe bomber stuff, right? I mean, there's all kinds of evidence that's been submitted by various people, um, but we don't know what the committee is going to use, right? But just because it's not new to you or me, uh, it's new to a lot of people, right? So, you know, Elbrant Bozell, the MRC, you know, who was he calling? I know I've talked about him, the, all the other Republican officials. Uh, you know, he's not an official, obviously. It just so happens to be uh, Bill Buckley's great-grandnephew. Um, you know, 
all the other various people with long established connections to the Republican Party. If there were, you know, if they were a gang, they'd be larger than the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers combined, right? All the people who are affiliated with the Republican Party. Um, so, you know, that is something that I expect we will see more about. Because, again, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just the paramilitaries who led the violent attack. Uh, it's going to have to go up the food chain, and I believe that there are lots of different routes that are going to hopefully be used by the committee and the Department of Justice to show uh, links between the violent mob and the uh, central organizers and planners. And you can kind of draw lines, right? There's lots of pictures of, you know, Proud Boys floating around there, uh, you know, three percenters hanging out and with Lauren Boebert and stuff like that. But uh, there, I believe there's going to be much closer evidence, uh, perhaps on the 5th and 6th committee hearings. So those are events, to I think, to, to look out for, because that are those, those are basically the penultimate hearings, right, before the final hearing. So I am going to end this now. I, there are thing, other things I could say. I won't, because I expect I will probably uh, do another one of these uh, relatively soon. Again, these committee hearings are coming out fast and furious. And just quickly alert you to the other hearings. So uh, we're going to have a third hearing on 10 a.m. on the 15th. That's Wednesday of this week. And the witnesses are going to be Jeff Rosen, uh, Richard Donahue, and Steve Engel. The fourth hearing is going to be at 1 p.m. on June 16th. So that's Thursday. And the witness there is going to be Greg Jacobs, uh, who I know I just cited, right? Thanks for your bullshit. We are under siege. Then the, let's see, the fifth hearing is going to be on June 21st. So that is going to be at 10. No witnesses listed as of yet. And the sixth hearing on June 23rd uh, in prime time. So hopefully that will suffice uh, for this episode, and again, I expect to put out uh, one again relatively quickly. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, until next time, I'm Scott Schoen.